you've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. What is going on, team? I hope all is swell with you. Thanks so much for being here. For this episode, the trader who I had the great opportunity to speak with and who you're about to hear from is Adrian or at AddyF69 on Twitter. Going back in time, Adrian was a professional sailor for almost two decades, but for the past six years, he's been on dry land taking an income from financial markets as an independent day trader. Adrian primarily trades the Bund and the DAX, though he initially started out in foreign exchange. His trading strategy is influenced by support and resistance areas, volume profiling, order flow, and stats. After talking about how Adrian survived storms at sea, torturous sleeping patterns, and run-ins with pirates, we spend a fair amount of time discussing how Adrian actually uses stats and some things to watch out for and why it pays to be process-driven. Please enjoy this episode, guys. I'm Aaron Firefield, your host, and here is my guest, Adrian. Hi, Aaron. How are you? Adrian, I'm good, man. What's up? Um, not much. Been um, just trading today. Yeah, yeah, cool. So you had a bit of a storm last night? Yeah, man, it got pretty. Uh, it got pretty wild. <laughs> did you see uh, the, the the photo I posted on Twitter? Yeah, I did. Yeah, was that um, a tree branch that come from the window? Yeah, from across the road, um, the whole sort of top of a tree blew off and flew across the road. Uh, branch came straight through the window, and uh, the road was like blocked, obviously because the tree was across it. The the roof next door on our neighbor's house has like a three by two meter hole blown in the side of it. What else? The guttering along the front of our house blew off. The fence in the backyard is on a total lean. Um, it's only been held up because there's a couple of trees behind it. Yeah, it's uh, it's a bit of a mess. <laughs> so yeah. we had busy uh, days trying to sort that out. Yeah, we're gonna have to obviously get on the phone to insurance and um, a lot of cleanup. Oh, there's so much shit in the pool, including part of the neighbor's roof next door. We've got to try and dig that out. So that's gonna be fun. <laughs> and it's a bit too cold to jump in there and grab it at this stage. <laughs> Summer's not quite here yet. Yeah. yeah. But uh, no, it's all good. It's all good. 
how's your weekend? Yeah, good. Just spent some time with the missus, done my usual weekly review and trade and analyze and all the work around that side. So quite busy. Very good. But well, my missus works away from home during the week, so I'm home alone. So I try and spend a bit of time with her at the weekends. Otherwise, you know, we both just end up working all the time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now you've got to have that balance. So before we talk trading, I'm actually really interested to hear a bit about life before all of this. Uh, you were a pro sailor, is that right? Yeah, I was a professional sailor for 17, 18 years. Um, sailing, you know, I sailed around the world, lived in America, Caribbean and France. So I had quite interesting life um, doing that. And, enjoy, and sailing's always been a bit of a passion for me. But it got to the stage where I was reaching, you know, my early 40s. And there's a lot of traveling and living out of hotels involved with pro sailing. And it was kind of, what do old sailors do? And uh, I was getting a bit bored with the traveling and, you know, out of hotels. And I wasn't doing that much sailing anymore. I was managing projects and refits and stuff like that so i started um i decided i was going to leave it and leave saving before i got too old and try and make another career um so i, I left that i did some project work for a friend of mine who ran a, um, a currency exchange and doing del- deliverable currency and i was managing the new build of his website and his database and stuff and that's what got me interested in trading because they were obviously um, using charts and stuff for the Forex market. And um, and that's how I got into trading. started part, doing trading part-time on the side while I was doing other projects. And, um, and then decided a couple of years into it that I, would, I wouldn't mind having to go at making that a, a career. It interested me a lot. had a lot of similarities on the outside to... Um, I used to do a lot of weather routine and analysing the weather for my in my pro sailing career. And on the surface, it seemed to be very similar to doing stuff like that. And that's all, that side's always interested me and process and stats and stuff. But even though at the time, I wasn't particularly good at stats. And thought, whilst I thought I understood them, my, my understanding wasn't as good as I thought it was. <laughs> yeah, okay. I mean, the stats in particular is something I'm very keen to ask you about. Um, so we're going to really get into that in a moment. During your sailing career, what were some of the competitions that you uh, participated in? I did the Fast Up Race um, seven times, did the Newport Bermuda, done Cork Week twice, Cows Week nine times. Um, I did the Clip Around the World Race. Um, we used to have. Um, See, we saw the rule races, which are offshore races, basically around the English Channel. I did so many of them, I can't even remember the number of them. So I used to compete a lot um, around the cans and offshore. Full on, okay. And do you, I mean, do you have any stories from like being out at sea and any like wild weather and huge waves, anything like that you sort of came up against? Um, yeah, I mean, I've been out in. Um, Storms, maybe in Bay of Biscay where other boats have sank. You know, I've been the one of the first, well, I'd say one of the first trips is my third transatlantic. And back then in the early, well, late 80s, early 90s, that most small yachts were still 
didn't have GPS. We couldn't afford GPS on small yachts. Um, so we were still doing transatlantics at the time uh, using sextants, astro-navigating by the, the sun and the moon and the stars. And we are doing a delivery, um, taking a, in a, in a tow from France to the Caribbean, and we was hit by a storm about six, seven hundred miles off um, France, and it was um, it was so windy that at one stage it went, the sea went from being humongous waves about the size of the boat, forty to fifty foot size waves, to in the peak of it that actually the sea levelled out and was complete foam. Um, but the boat was leaning over about fifty degrees. Just permanent hill with no sails up. We had taken the sails down because it was just too windy for the sails. And at times like that, there's a, a saying which is, I think, stolen from World War One. But there's no atheists in a small boat at sea in a storm. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, what do you do in times like that? Do you just sort of sit still and hope for the best? Or, I mean, is there anything you can do? There is stuff you can do, but you do very much understand after you've. Um, spent a certain amount of sea that you are very much in behold of uh, mother nature at times. So there's stuff you can do, but if the sea wants to take you, the sea's going to take you. I mean, one of the worst things I ever saw was coming across mid-Atlantic, um, a bunch of um, life jackets, uh, old-fashioned cork-filled life jackets all tied together into a, a raft. And they've been out there for a while and they're all stained and everything. And, so obviously somebody tried to use it as a raft. And back then we had no ways of communicating with shore. So that was before sat phones or sat phones were small enough to take on small boats of like 30 to 40 foot size. So we couldn't report it. Um, we reported it once we got to the, um, the Caribbean side and it had been, it had a ship's number on it and it had been a fishing boat that sank about six weeks and they never recovered anyone. They just disappeared. So we had come across the last place where obviously the survivors had um, tried to make, or how many of them we don't know, tried to make a raft and had a guide there. It's quite unnerving when you're you know, like 2,000 miles from the nearest um, piece of land. But it does make you realise what the human body or the human being is capable of in them conditions when you get to situations where you're so tired or hungry or dehydrated that actually you can go keep going and do stuff and you see people that you never thought would um, in the moment of crisis stand up and people you thought would be strong in moments of crisis and um, crumble. Mm, mm, yeah. Yeah. No, that's uh that's, that's really interesting to hear about. I mean, I don't know if this might be a bit of a silly question, but you know, during your, your sailing career, was there ever a risk of pirates out there, you know, in the seas? Um. In certain areas, yeah, south of the South China Sea, and there's pirates. So they're not what people imagine to be. They're basically, um, they were basically fishermen that could see a um, expensive boat sailing along in a race, and were opportunists. So they would try and come alongside, or they would go right in front of us and drop their nets, um, like 20, 30 meters just in front of us, hoping we'd run into them. So they were opportunist pirates. So they weren't going around, especially looking to pirate. Their main thing was fishing. If they saw opportunity to um, take advantage of unarmed um, or undefended um, Westerners, then they would take the opportunity. 
Okay, so did you have run-ins personally like this? Yeah, they they we tried to be boarded and they tried to um, get alongside us a few times. Yeah, was there ever a time when they did come on board? No, no. Okay. I always, you know, on that trip down there, I spent nine days at sea. Um, I slept every two hours for 20 to 30 minutes and that's what was my routine because of the the risk of pirates and that sort of stuff. So I was constantly going up in deck. So I spent nine days doing that. I never slept more than 40 minutes in that nine days. That's crazy. What happens to your mind during when, you, when you're sleeping with that sort of pattern? Um, it's not particularly good for f- focus or making good decisions. You operate at a very base level. Um, you're constantly tired. At one stage, you got so tired I was hallucinating. So that when I had a, a 40 minutes sleep. But you, um, you learn a lot about how to get away um, shorter sleeps. So whilst that wasn't particularly good, I learned from that I learned lessons about how to manage my sleep in future. So I've done a 20-day trip where every four hours I slept for only one hour. So I never got into REM sleep. So I never woke up. Um, well, I woke up feeling tired, but I never woke up um, like out of it. Uh, that was a much better routine and I could maintain that for like 20 days, but sleeping 20 to 30 minutes every two hours is um, was crap. You make a lot of bad decisions. Wow. Yeah, I imagine that'd be really tough going. I mean, why were you, why were you doing this? Were, were these solo trips? Like, was there no one else on board with you for this? No, it, was a, it was a fully crewed race, but it was an amateur race. So I was the only professional on board. And I was, so I had amateur crew with me. And... Um, so you're responsible for them. And during their South China trip, it was um, pretty windy. So that made the conditions quite dangerous. And with the amount of fishing boats around, some of them were opportunist pirates and some of them were just fishing boats. But yeah, with all the nets and fishing boats, which don't always have proper lights on, so you can't see them. You just had to be on the ball all the time. Yeah, yeah. Okay, full on. All right, so let's let's talk a little bit about uh, trading. <laughs> um, yeah. Talk to us about how you... Became, went from being a sailor to actually becoming a trader. You mentioned that you were doing some sort of project work with um, someone who ran a currency exchange. Uh, would yeah. you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, he was a currency dealer. So in UK, there's various currency dealers that if you want to exchange money via the bank, they charge you um, quite a large percentage or they used to charge quite a large percentage. So various companies set up as intermediates between banks and the public. So you could exchange money with these, these companies and you'll get a better exchange rate than doing it with the bank because basically the, the, this currency firm would put everyone's um, currency trades together and get a better deal on the exchange rate. So you could get like, at the time, the banks used to charge about 4% to change your money. And these currency houses were often between 1% and 2%. So you could say 2% on the exchange rate. So it's really aimed for people that are transferring 2,000 euros, pounds, or dollars and above. That's because they, they made savings on that. So it was a friend of mine, and I went there to um, oversee project management or these, build these databases, websites. Okay, excellent. And so how did you go once you kind of made the decision that this was something that interested you and you wanted to pursue it further? Like what happened from there and, and how did you go once you started to get into trading a little bit more? I think I followed the, the path of a lot of um, retail traders as in 
buying a system of the internet and paying for poor quality courses, um, basically because I didn't really have enough knowledge to understand what I was looking at, whether I could value, if it was good value for money. And, you know, sucked in a bit by the the sales pitch of that all you need is was a system and you'll be rich. I soon realised after about a year that that wasn't really going to be the case. I then started looking for a system and trying to get myself organised rather than just a get-rich-quick scheme. So that was the, how I started. And, and I made all the mistakes that a lot of retail traders make mistakes because a lot of the times people just really haven't got the information to make good decisions. And I was looking for shortcuts, but after trading for six odd years, but about two to three years in and realised that the shortcuts I was looking for, I trading systems, setups, and edge actually are the wrong shortcuts that I should have been looking for, and I think which most beginners shouldn't be looking for. Okay, so would you mind elaborating on that point, maybe a little bit more about some of the shortcuts that you think we should be focusing on, if we should be focusing on shortcuts at all? Um. The average retail trader that I've met and myself, you know, are looking for setups and systems to start with because that's the things that's the 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 best path to follow to profitability. But over in the first two years, stroke three years, um, and really, it, I was nearly profitable before I actually realised this. That as all the profitable traders I met, you know, whether prop firms, ex retail, they all traded different systems or different setups. And it suddenly occurred to me that the common link between all the profitable traders wasn't that they were trading just one way, they were trading a variety of systems. Actually, the common link between profitable traders is actually not their edge, is the, the way they, appro- they approach the, the whole business of trading. So they, they knew how to you know, evaluate an edge, you know, how to understand the understood probability, how to review, how to change the systems and how to process stuff. So that all their, the thing in common was just how they approached the business. So if I was decided then, if I, the best way to replicate and to turn profitable was not actually just to just purely focus on finding a profitable system, was to replicate the work ethic and the, the principles of the all the rest of the side of the profitable traders, i.e., process you know how to evaluate a trading system because we buy these trading systems off the internet or you follow someone, and most of the time we don't know how to honestly evaluate whether they actually have trading system has an edge. Okay, and when you came into trading, when you first kind of uh, got started. Were you doing this, did you sort of jump into trading full-time or was this something that was sort of a, a side hustle while you were continuing to do this contracting work? Start with it was just a side hustle. I was doing it part-time in the evenings. And one thing about myself, I know that I'm not particularly good at focusing on two different projects at the same time. So that I found that Either I was focusing on the trading and my project work was suffering or I was focusing on the project work and the trading was suffering. So after about a couple of years, well, I wasn't really making much progress. So I decided that if I was going to make a go of trading, then I would have to 
stop doing the project work and um, focus on the trading, which then meant that I'd sit down with the wife, we had to sort out our finances, and basically she was going to have to support me until we got profitable. And um, we'd have to make fairly drastic cutbacks in our lifestyle to support that. So that was a, um, a decision we made as so I went full time. And then it took me about uh, probably 18 months after that to get profitable on Forex, but I was trading the daily, the daily time frames. And I found whilst I was profitable on that, I couldn't really um, make a living because I was undercapitalized. So after about a year of trading Forex, I decided I was going to move to do futures really to get more opportunities. And then once I moved to the futures market, I realized that my whilst my system, I was trading the same system, was, had edged the market that the rest of the my decision making or how I approached the trading wasn't robust enough on the lower time frames. On the daily time frame, you know, I, I would have hours to make a decision and watch the markets. But then when you go, I was going down to the five minute time frame, you might only have a minute to make the same decision. And I soon realized that my whole process and decision making approach wasn't robust enough for that time frame. So I was a lot more inconsistent, made a lot more discretionary errors. And it took me a while to get to get to grips with that and to get on top of that. Okay, so just like to back up a little bit to when you sat down with your wife and you had that discussion about when you were going to step into trading full time and at this point you weren't profitable. I mean, what did that discussion sort of go like? What were some of the things you talked about? Um, did you have sort of, uh, in a sense, goals that you wanted to hit profitability within 12 months? If you didn't do that, you were going to, you know, pack it in and go back to work. I mean, was there anything like that? Did you set any kind of milestones that you wanted to hit uh, right at the beginning there? We had one milestone that um, if I lost 50% of our money, then we would reassess whether this was um, a viable option for me, and that was it. We both just had a belief that, you know, one thing uh, my wife knows about me and myself is that I have tendonicity that, you know, if I approach something, either they'll do it or they'll go in the back garden still trying to do it. So if I say I'm going to do something, then I will do it sooner or later. Yeah. I mean, you must have been pretty confident in yourself that you were going to be able to do this. I mean, it's quite a big decision to actually jump into trading full time, especially at a point where you're not profitable, I think. So, I mean, props to you. It's obviously worked out well. Yeah, it is a difficult decision, but then the day that I left the career and city to go sailing, which was unpaid at the time, when I was working as a management trainee for a big shipping firm, and all my friends and family thought I was nuts for doing that. So it, that thinking I'm going to fail or it's going to turn out has never been a problem for me because I think that I'm always going to... The worst thing someone can tell me is I can't do it. Mm, mm. And I think, you know, often... Often people are kind of scared to take a risk like that. I'm not saying you should just go out there and, and quit your job to whoever's listening to this right now and just jump into trading full time. But often people are actually already living out their worst case scenario. You know, people are always scared about if they take this risk and they jump into something, what if that fails and what if it doesn't work out? Um, and even if it does fail and it doesn't work out, 
the likely scenario is they're going to go back to what they're doing right now. So in most cases, many people are already living out their worst case scenario. But, uh, you know, just moving on from this, during that kind of that, that, that 12 months, 18 months, how did you deal with information overload? Did you feel as though there was an overload of information? And, uh, you know, how did you do your best to avoid going down dead ends? Um, to be honest, to start with, you, you have no real way of avoiding the dead ends because you're so inexperienced in the market, or I was so inexperienced in the market, you have to go down a certain amount of dead ends to realise they're dead ends. And as you go down the dead ends, you realise, start to recognise dead ends, so you, you, you get the experience not to go down them. So you, one of the mantras that, and I've got this from FT and a, a few others, that I just learned to accept that what I've done in the past or what I've done up to now, I can't change. It's what I now do from now onwards because, you know, there's plenty of dead ends in this business and some you just can't avoid. Some you can by focusing on the, you know, I call them shortcuts, but focusing on the right areas so you can evaluate edges or evaluate the information out there. But as a retail trader, you, you need to just focus on one thing at a time because there's so much information and so many areas to do well in. You need to just split them up and take it in small steps. So would you say that there was any kind of definitive turning point in your trading career? Um, my definitive trading point was because I used to do a lot of racing, I used to do a lot of um, tracking and performance analysis. So as soon as I started trading, I started tracking my um, trades and I wasn't profitable when I was tracking them. And then it suddenly occurred to me that and that if I wasn't consistently following my rules, so you know, my own process or making loads of errors, then actually the trades I was taking were slightly random or random trades. So all the stats I was doing on my random trades were random stats. So while I was trying to analyze and review them, I was just reviewing a bunch of random stats. So the value from the stats was virtually zero. So I stopped tr um, tracking everything and went back to tracking just my consistency and errors because I went through, when I thought about that and realized, well, if I'm not consistent, then I'm just tracking random. So I went back and looked at like the last... I can't remember how many it was, like 50, 60 trades, and like 50% of them had errors in it. And then I would look at them old trades. Once I removed all the errors, I went from a losing trader to actually a slightly profitable trader just by removing the errors. And that's not even approaching the, looking at the consistency side. So what I did was then just start tracking errors and my consistency in following my rules. And by working on that side, that turned me from a unprofitable trader to a break-even trader to a slightly profitable trader um, just by um, focusing on them areas that's without trying to optimize my system or work on the system so that was a key turning point for me right and what were some of the errors that you noticed you were doing uh, most regularly not taking trades that are in my system taking trades that wasn't in my system being early so a lack of impatience. So I've got um, an area where I want to, I set up by enter early before I, that my checklist was complete. Um, 
missing the, missing the entry and then entering late, um, breaking my trade management rules, putting the wrong targets in, wrong stops, made all them sorts of errors. Some more than others in the first couple were the majority, so that was really an you know, order of um, how often they occurred for me. Okay. I like the point you bring up there about how, you know, you were tracking your trades, you were doing the right thing, but, you know, the trades you were tracking were trades that were outside of your, your strategy that you should have been trading. Uh, so you were essentially tracking randomness. I think that's, uh, that's a really interesting point. I'm glad you, you brought that up. Talk to us about how you're trading these days. Give us the rundown on your approach to markets now. I mean, uh, is it any different from when you first got started? Um, yeah, completely different. I can't even remember the system I traded when I first started, but I I trade um, supply and demand, which was originally I learned that from a course from um, OTA by Sam Sidon, and the way they teach it is freely available on the internet. But what I've done is altered that to to sort myself by using um, volume profile. So I use sort of supply and demand to find areas where I think there's trap traders or traders wanting to get out and in and then use that to take my trades off. Okay, and what markets are you trading? Um, trading the Bund is my primary market. I was trading Euro stocks, but I've swapped Euro stocks and I'm experimenting with the DAX at the moment as a secondary market. Right, and you're trading intraday? Intraday, yeah. So my big picture is 60 minutes, my medium picture is 15 minutes, and I trade off the three-minute charts. Okay, and if I understand correctly, I think you mentioned this a little earlier, uh, you started out as more of a, a swing trader or maybe a multi-day trader, but you've you know since gone to the intraday time frame. I mean, what sparked that change? The spark that change was the the fact that it would take me compounding my account. It would take me over ten years to actually earn the same sort of money that I was earning while sh- um, saving. So I would have my wife would have to sort me, support me for ten years, and I would then only then through compounding because I didn't have loads of um, capital. And I was very careful with the capital I had. Um, obviously, saving. Is a lot better paid now, so funny enough since I've left. But at the time, sailing wasn't particularly well paid, so I didn't have loads of um, capital. And that was the main reason to change from trading the daily to the intraday was to maximise the number of opportunities. And whilst trading the same amount of risk um, relatively on the intraday, it just had more opportunities, thus more opportunities to um, compound my account. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I can see how that makes sense. Um, and now the, the markets you mentioned there that you trade, uh, you know, out of all the markets available to you, why do you trade these select few markets? Is there any reason? Um, yes, there is. Um, when I was trading Forex, I was looking to move to intraday and I was starting to experiment on um, Forex markets intraday. I, I went to a party and one of the crew I used to sell with um, worked for, uh, I can't remember what bank, but she worked for a bank. And there was a couple of traders at this party. Didn't know each other, worked for two different um, firms. I can't remember who, what firms they were because it was quite a few years ago. And I was talking to them about trading. And 
none of them traded forex, and no one in their firm traded forex. They traded the odd currency market on the futures, but they were, you know, secondary trades at best. And everyone was trading, you know, either the ES or the Bund or the Euro stocks or the, the, the DAX. And and I thought, well, all everyone in retail was trading forex, and it seems all the pros were trading completely different markets. And then through um, Tom Dante, Tom Dante was talking about his experiences at Prob. And it was basically the same thing, that no one was trading Forex as a primary market. And I think he said one person was trading Forex as a primary market, and there was at least a profitable person at the firm. And I thought, well, there must be something in that, that retail are trading Forex and the pros are trading different markets. So if I wanted to be a pro, I should be trading the same markets as the pros trade. Okay, so why do you think that is, that less of the quote-unquote professionals trade forex compared to other futures to be honest i'm not too sure i mean i wasn't having much success on the lower time frames in forex i've i'm honest, i'm, I'm not 100 percent sure why they don't i mean i'm not sure that the forex on the lower time frames are slightly more random or there's more games played but i think that the pros and the pros I've met are using a lot more volume profile, and that's obviously easier, easily available on the, the futures market because there's no real central exchange on the Forex. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. They started at the beginning, reimagining the bond screener with an intuitive design that helps you zero in on the exact kinds of bonds you're looking for. Then they made it easier to evaluate each investment opportunity with better data in the places you need it most. Finally, they made investing in bonds as straightforward as stocks or any other asset. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. So you mentioned a little earlier that you've recently started trading the DAX as well as kind of a secondary market to what you do. What are some of the things you've done to get familiar with this market? Like, you know, as someone who is you know, a profitable trader now, uh, you've seen some success. When you introduce a new market to what you do, what are some of the first things that you actually do to familiarize yourself 
with that in this case being the ducks? The first thing I did was I I keep about 15 to 20 stats on standard stats on the market I trade. So the first thing I did was draw up the same stats um, for the DAX market. And then I had the charts open for maybe two weeks and just watched it, see if it reacted to the and drew my lines and done my other process how I analyze each time frame to find areas of interest or areas where I buy and sell. And so I did the same analyst drop the same trade plan for it, but I didn't actually trade it. I just then watched to see if it kind of reacted the way that um, it would to my system. And then I started trading it using one lots um, just to see, you know, where the buffers need to be, you know, how, how much I need to front run levels, you know, how easy it is to get filled and just really experimenting with how it reacts to my system and what change I need to make to my system to deal with the DAX market because obviously the DAX is a lot thinner, thinner than the bond market and the euro stocks. Okay. Now, you've used the term system uh, a little bit. Let's just get very clear on this. How much of what you do is discretionary uh, versus rules-based, just so we understand where you're coming from here? Well, basically, I couldn't code my system, but it's very much um, rules-process-based in how I make my decisions. So it's a discretionary system, but there's, um, it's, it's very rules-based in how I make my, dis- my discretionary decision. So I have um, rules for how I analyze the charts, how I find the, the areas of entry, what I'm looking for. So I have a checklist and a cheat sheet for how I analyze, find setups, and and depending on the strength of the setup, according to my processes, what sort of targets I'm looking for. So whilst it is discretionary, it's very much rules-based in how I make my discretionary decisions. Okay, so what's the, what are some of the discretionary aspects of your, your strategy or your system? Is it mainly actually deciding which trades you're going to take and which trades you're going to let go, or is there something more to it? Yeah, it's basically, if I have area of interest, there's, there's basically either there's a trade off it where I'm just going to put an entry in, so when it comes back, it fills, or the, if the level is area of interest but it's not strong, then I'm looking for a trigger, so then I'm looking for a checklist of about four items, which I need uh, at least two of them to enter that trade or it's an area that um, I don't take a trade. I have to wait to see for new structures to form in there. Okay. And once you do get into a trade, how do you determine your position sizing? I mean, is it always fixed? Is it the same for each and every trade or does it vary somewhat? It tends to be fixed because my stops tend to be roughly about the same, but if the level's wider than normal for that market, then my position size will decrease so that I'm always risking the same amount of, approximately the same amount of um, account each time. Okay. And as you mentioned stops there, I'm keen to ask, you know, how do you actually identify where you will place your stops for each trade? Because I'm looking at, um, on volume profile for areas where I think there's a bunch of traders that either want to get in or want to get out then my stop will go on that two ticks on the other side of that. So on the boon, that can vary between five ticks to 10 ticks. 
these averagely between six ticks. Okay, so your stop placement is based upon the volume profile and not where the actual, not not a price chart, is that correct? Yeah, but the volume profile on the, the, the price chart, yeah. Okay, so you do factor in the price chart to where your stop will go as well. Yeah, yeah well, I, I look at the price chart because the volume profile could be at the, the extremity of a high. So mm-hmm. it will typically go one or two ticks above the high because that will be the other side of the, the HVN I'm looking at or the, rot- the rotational point. Right, right, okay. All right, well, Adrian, let's talk stats. I mean, I've been really keen to speak with you about this. Um, I'm really interested in this for personal reasons, of course, and I think it's going to be uh, very interesting for many listeners to hear about how you use stats in your trading as well. So let's just start right there. How do you use stats in your trading? I do about 20 stats and, uh, you know, for example, gap fills. But one of the problems I had with stats is that you could have 82% chance there's going to be a gap fill, but to be honest, the 82% chance of the gap fill by the end of the day, you could go 100 ticks offside and then come back and fill the gap. So he was trying to work out, you know, whilst it was a good target, he was trying to work out where um, you enter to take advantage of that stat. So I ended up, you know, not really being able to take advantage of the stat. So what I do now is uh, once I've worked out a stat, and let's say, for example, it's a gap fill on the bund, that I ignore, it's got a gap above a certain size. So anything below zero to six, I'm not interested in because that affects the stats because the original stat I had, I think was 92%. But if you take out the zero to six ticks gaps then it comes to so i'm looking at a range of a gap between six and 15 ticks has an 82 percent chance of filling so what i then did was look at all the stats that filled that gap that fell in that range and then looked how far they went offside so then using that uh, you look at the the curve on that to find out what was the most common how far they went offside the most common price and standard deviation what 70 percent of them did so that gives me for a gap up that the most common um offside is 11 ticks and the standard deviation is 17 ticks so if i get to gap up between 6 and 15 ticks i am now looking for trades between 11 and 17 ticks for the gap fill if it goes above that then i know that it's more whilst it still can fill it's more unlikely to feel, and I'm not that particularly interested in that stat anymore, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. No, it does. It does. Um, how do you actually get these stats that you want to know? Like there you mentioned uh, some stats on uh, gap fills. How do you actually find these? Do you use Excel? Do you have a programmer? I mean, tell us a little bit about how you actually get these numbers. Um, I, I used to use Excel, and it takes, to be honest, if you've got a fair bunch of stats, it takes forever to do them. Um, I use RT Investor, the, the platform. And the, the beauty of that is that you can, and they have a whole homework section on their website, on RT Investor website. And you can drop the charts, which will actually um, give you them stats by putting indicators on there that will give you the, those stats by programming in their language. And I'm not particularly good at programming, but what I did was 
in their homework section, I downloaded some of their charts on stats, looked at how they were done, reverse engineered them until they did what I wanted them to do by trial and error. So now I have a chart which I update my stats every month that I call up for each of my 20 stats, and it tells me what the updated statistics are. Then I fill out a cheat sheet, and that's how I do my stats. And that's how I can do keep up to date with 20 stats. If I did them all by Excel, to do 20 stats would probably take me two to three days and lots of tears. Okay, yeah. So this is something that the functionality is built into the investor RT platform, is it? Yeah, he has the capability. And they have loads of uh, tutorials to, um, to teach you how to get that functionality out of the charting platform. Right. And you mentioned that uh, you, you get the updated numbers each month. What is the data sample in the stats that you're using? Like how many, um, yeah, how large is the data sample? Like is it a moving window or is it sort of cumulative data? It's a moving window and the size of the moving window is dependent on the, the, the stat. So the typical moving window for me is 1,500 days. Some of my stats, which I'm trying to capture the what he's recently doing is like the size of the, the swings – I, I, I do on the lower time frames, I run a 30-day rolling window. Okay, okay. And do you find that certain stats are less reliable in certain types of market conditions? Yes and no. Because in the day, the stats are the stats. Um, and you have to take in context. Um, take in context. And that's why I've done the, what, the, you know, the, the maximum adverse excursion on the majority of my stats to find out where it's, you know, if it's going to feel how far offside 70% of them go. So then it gives me a clue that, you know, if it just punches straight through that, then it's unlikely the stat's going to be fulfilled. So I'm not particularly interested in, in that trade because you, you could get situations where the stat's open, but the price is going one direction away from the, the, the stat to be filled. And you're sitting there wondering, well, is it going to feel or is it going to feel? So by using the maximum adverse excursion technique, that once it gets past a certain level, you know I won't be interested in that stat again unless it comes come comes back towards the, the say for the gap fill and then gives me a setup in that direction. So I use it as a qualifier, you know, if it, and it gives you a clue of the strength of the market. Yeah, would you mind explaining maximum adverse excursion? Yeah, yeah, maximum adverse excursion is what I, I use is saying that if I have a stat saying that it's going to test the volume point of control, then I look at all, and, it, and that stat is 65%. So I look at all the, the times that it did test the point of control, and I look at how far it's gone the maximum it goes offside, so maximum adverse excursion away from the, the open price or whatever point I'm measuring from. So that will give me, out of all the trades that feel, I get give me an idea of how far it's going to go away from, you know, so if I took the trade, as soon as the stat become viable, how far it would go offside. So I don't just take the stat when it comes viable. I just use that to give me a gauge of how far it might go away for filling. And if it goes further than that, then I'm not interested. So that's what I call a maximum adverse excursion for the stat fill. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, yeah. And on the other side of that, the maximum favorable excursion, is this something you also look at maybe in terms of uh, profit targets or something like that? Does that come into play in your analysis? It comes into play in my analysis for um, my own trades. I track maximum favorable excursion and maximum adverse excursion in my trades after I exit to see if I to monitor how well I'm placing my targets. Okay, and is this something that you can track in uh, Investor RT as well, or is this something? Do you have an Excel spreadsheet that you track this in, or do you manually do it? Um, how do you how do you track this? Um, I track it um, manually, and I put it in a spreadsheet, and then I put loads of Excel sliders on it to um, so then I can break down the information into long shorts or whatever. Now I did a um, post on my blog. Um, showing you um, the, the readers how to set one up. And I think that actually I put the Excel spreadsheets up there as well. So there's a video actually how to make your own MFE, MAE um, tracker. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, I'll dig up a link to that and I'll make sure to include that in the show notes so uh, anyone listening to this can find out more about that. I think uh, that's well worth your time. Um, we were talking a little bit before we hit the record button and – one of the things you mentioned is that traders sometimes use stats in the wrong way. Uh, would you like to share, you know, maybe an example of how traders may use stats in the wrong way? Well, it really comes back to um, what I was saying before about that if you have a stat that's going to do something by the end of the day, it doesn't really – so it might give you a context and it might give you a target, but it doesn't give you um, an entry. So you don't know if there's actual a profitable edge in that stat until you you, you do more research because it's a stat by itself saying that there's I have a stat that the um, initial balance range one side will be tested ninety eight percent every day so nearly virtually every day one side will break but by itself it, it's not much of an edge because it could be either side. And you don't know where your entry is. So you don't know what your risk reward is. So even with a 98% chance of breaking either side, it wants to give you a target. It doesn't really help you um, find an entry. So that's why I think that a lot of people focus on the, the wrong side of the stats. to get the stats, but they don't know, really know how to turn that into a, a profitable edge. Okay. So once you have a stat which is seems kind of interesting to you, what's the next step you do with that? Like when do you decide whether that's something you're going to factor into your decisions or whether it's something that's just, uh, I guess, essentially noise, like it's there's no edge in, in knowing that. What's kind of the next step you do once you discover a stat that, you, that grabs your attention? Um, what I do is the first thing I do is actually the only interesting stats really that are above 65 to 70% because you can have too many stats and the wild ones are stats that are a high probability. If they're under that, then I'm not that particularly interested. And also that I'm not that particularly interested if it's a stat that's going to, you know, generate only two or three ticks of um, profit. So I'm looking for the stats that are, I've got a decent amount of profit in them or potential profit 
using common sense that I can actually use within my shaving. Because some stats that you come up with, like the IB high, I, I use that stat all the time, knowing that one side tends to break, but it's not a major part of my, um, it's part of my analysis, but it's not, I don't take trades going, well, it's going to break one side. I would be looking going, well, I think this is an area where buyers are going to step in. Then I'd go, well, where's my, my target's going to be? Well, the IB high hasn't broken yet. We're due to break one side. Buyers are going to step in here. So that's a natural, um, natural target. Mm-hmm. Okay. And just to clarify for anyone listening, if you don't, if you're not familiar with what IB is, it stands for initial balance, which is the opening 60 minute range of the uh, regular trade now's, uh, the regular trade now session. That's correct, isn't it? Yeah. I use um, a two hour on the Bundo. Okay. Right. Right. um, And all other markets is um, one hour. Yeah. Okay, Adrian. Well, I'm really keen to ask you about how you create a trading plan for the day ahead. I know you post this on your Twitter feed, um, obviously on your blog, which you link to on your Twitter feed. Um, how do you go about creating a trading plan for each day? What's included in it? Well, I started with the weekly, and which I do at the, at the weekend. I have a look at the weekly charts to see if there's anything obvious. I have a process for every chart. So every chart I will join, you know, um, highs and lows that are significant to me, any flip zones, and then in, using this, my same system, I draw in any areas where I think there's buyers or uh, buy areas or s- sell areas. So I do that on the weekly to get just an idea of what's going on, even though I don't factor in just to give me an idea of what the overall massive picture is. I, and then I do the same on the daily. So each day I look at the daily to see if there's any breakout failures of inside days, which may give me a bias for the next day. And then my main analysis on done on the 16 and 15 minutes. So I look at what the 60-minute um, bias is, trend, whether it's in balance or is you know in a range or is actually trending, how long, how strong the trend is. And then I ask myself, um, what's likely to hold if this trend is going to continue? No matter if whether – it's not a case of whether I think it's going to continue. The first thing I do is ask myself, if it continues, what should hold and what should break and where should it, I think it should test. I do the same on the 15 minutes. And then from that, then I draw up a long scenario, neutral scenario and short scenario. So, and that's really how I just work down. I just work down from the, the 60 to the 15 minutes, looking at the daily just for uh, overall bias and analyze them both in the same ways and just work out where what I think should hold based on my, you know, if it's in a trend or if it's in balance and what should break and where it should test, which then gives me an idea of where I should be taking trades and red flag areas. So if I think that it's in an uptrend and it should break the high, next day if it doesn't break the high, then that gives me, um, or it's struggling to break the high, or breakout fails, and that gives me an idea that the trend may not be strong enough. We may have um, a change in behavior in the market. Right. And one thing that often comes up that traders mention that they struggle with is actually not doing up a plan, but once they do up a plan, they actually struggle to stick to it and follow it through. Is that something that you uh, were ever challenged with or had that always come 
fairly natural to you considering your background in, in sailing and being very process driven for a good part of your career? Um, I definitely found it a lot easier to follow my plan when I was trading dailies. And was a, that was a lot easier. Injury days, I struggled with that um, a lot. And the way I get round, I got round it was to draw up um, what I call mini plans. So I, I really um, drawing up four or five times a day what he's done since the open and where I expect it to test. So then I can use that to then look at my um, daily trade plan to see that, it, you know, saying that if I think an uptrend, but it's going down, then I, I draw up my plan and look at the 60 minute. So it's, I kind of run a mental model of what's going on at the, the time to see how it fits into my, my major trade plan. So I have these little mini plans so I trade around the mini plan until I get to my major plan and then I trade around my major plan. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I mean, I'd suggest if anyone's actually interested in seeing how Adrian uh, goes about the, creating these plans to definitely check out uh, your website. What is your website, Adrian? Um, takingonetradeatatime.com. Takingonetradeatatime.com. Uh, yeah. I'll link to that in the show notes, of course. Uh, you know, at the end of each week, I noticed that you review uh, the week that's just been, how do you go about reviewing your, your trading week? What's that process like? And how has this been helpful, uh, for you in your development? Well, the, the key thing is to be honest with yourself, with, well, honest myself. That's been the key thing. Um, process is, is one thing, but actually no matter what process you put into place, if you're not being truly honest with yourself and to be honest, we used to have review processes when we used to do sailing. And the one thing I've noticed with myself and the majority of people that when you're doing proper reviews or performance is that people really don't like being that honest with themselves. They don't like to admit that they've um, made a tit of it. And that's, and that is to be the key because no matter how you approach it or what your process is for your review, if you're not really being honest about the reasons why that it's going wrong or it's not going the way you want, then you're not really going to get any answers. So the key part of the review process for me is the question why and to keep asking why am I doing that until it makes me uncomfortable because normally once you get to a really uncomfortable place with asking why, you're normally going to get to get to the answers. But the actual physical process is that I, the first thing I do is uh, I do a, a chart review at the end of each day. So I mark up all the areas where um, I took trades, make notes of them, areas I missed just because I didn't, or, or interesting things on the chart. So the first thing I do at the weekend is go through all them charts at the end of the day, um, market reviews. Then I go through the, the, the stats for the week and see where, um, if, when my results are in variance, how I'm doing against my goals, look at the number of errors, look at the number of missed trades, compare that to the week before to get an idea of whether, you know, I've had increasing errors or missed trades, etc. Et so I start taking all them notes down and then I go through my mini plans because next to my mini plans, I'm writing down what I'm feeling or what I've done wrong and look at, and also I make the notes in the market reviews and then get, it gives me an idea where, I haven't particularly performed well in that, that week and well, what I've done good. 
And also I grade my, I also grade my trains. So I go through the weekly grades and look for areas where my grading wasn't particularly good. Uh, and I grade, I also grade my days, the sessions for my focus. So I go through them areas and look for areas where I've scored lowly and then go back from my notes and look for things in common, why that was happening by looking at my mini plan. So that gives me two areas. I normally just trying to focus on two areas. One where I did well, so I'm not constantly beating myself up for doing shit. And, and one area where I did shit in, and then I go, well, I did shit. Why did I do shit? Why do I have, what, what's causing me to do shit? What's causing me to, you know, try and work down to the original cause? So I just keep asking myself why so I can go down and find out really. And normally, to be honest, most problems with not following the plan or making fuck-ups comes down to two things, fear of loss or fear of missing out. You know, and there, then there's others where you're, you're not focused or tired or you're distracted. But really, the, most of the stuff really comes down to the two fears. Right, so how do you actually grade your trades, like when reviewing these, how do you determine what's a good trade and what's a bad trade? Um, it changes over time. Um, hold on, let me just open my spreadsheet so I can, I can tell you exactly. So I'll probably get it wrong. First thing I do is, uh, and they, each of these are weighted in um, different, for different scores. So what's more important? So, the first one I grade it on is, is it in my trade plan? Um, and that's, and I have a score between zero, either zero, was in my trade plan, or 10, it was in my trade plan. Then I, I score it for, um, was I playing to win or playing not to lose? Because I, I did have, um, I do have a tendency to, um, play not to lose so take profits quickly rather than let them you know as soon as I see a bit of trouble get out of my trades rather than let them run to targets then I score myself for whether I was emotional in the trade or whether I was patient so how I was actually feeling I I score it on whether um, what the risk reward was like whether it was um, high risk reward medium risk reward or the risk reward was if it's under 1.5 risk reward to the first target I shouldn't be taking the trade. So I score that. I shouldn't be taking the trade because it was rubbish risk reward. I was an okay risk reward, I 1.5 and above. Or if it's um, above two, then it gets high score. I also track um, intuition. And that's really just to see that whether my gut instinct is right or wrong. So it's, it's part of my grading, but it's something to track. So if I feel that, my system says take the trade and my gut says no, then I score that low. If my system says it's an okay trade, uh, but my gut says yes, then that gets a high score. So that's really our ongoing project to see how well my gut instinct um, is working. I then grade it on entry, whether I was entered when I should do, I was a bit late, a bit early, and how I managed entry. Then I grade my exits, on the winners and I grade my exits on the, on the losers. And then, then I divide that by the total number of points to give me an A, B or C, D trade. 
and we can see all this on your website, right? Yeah, I've talked about my grading system before, and I got that idea how to grade the trades from breaking um, out bad. At breaking out bad, he's a trader on um, Twitter, and he has a whole screencast on grading days and grading trades. So I saw that, and I added that to my system. Excellent. And how many hours would you say you spend each week reviewing your trades and you know doing homework and this type of thing? Uh, a few 20 <laughs> outside of market hours yeah okay probably wow uh, probably slightly less than summer because I go saving on Tuesday and Thursday so my evening reviews tend to be um they, well I either don't do the evening reviews totally market review I will do my market prep, which lasts between half an hour and an hour, depending on what's happening in the markets. So in the summer, twice a week, I probably do an hour every evening. But during the outside the savings season, I am doing between an hour and two hours every night. And then I do 11 o'clock to 5 o'clock on Saturday and and about 11 o'clock to 5 o'clock on Sunday most weekends right okay that's really impressive wow well my, my friends say it's sad <laughs> <laughs> well you got to do what you got to do exactly um let's just do one last question just for fun um what's one thing you wish someone would have told you before you started trading the mental side is goes hand in hand with the, the trading edge and more importantly is that trading, and I didn't realize this myself until halfway through my um, you know, my career so far, if you want to call it a career, is that trading has actually got those similarities with competitive sports, as in like cycling, boxing, you know, individual um, competitive sport, as in that what you do outside the session or the event counts just as much as what you do inside and actually but you still got to perform whilst doing the event so if you was a boxer if you didn't do any fitness or any skills practice no matter how good a boxer you was you would still do rubbish in, when you come to a boxing match so and trading is the same but I didn't realise right at the beginning that how focused and processed you need to be in the prep side and your homework has such a big effect on the um, how you do actually in the trading session. And I think that's one of the biggest problems with um, a lot of retail traders because you know, I, not, I speak to a lot of people. I'm at stage five and I speak to people there. And I've, over the years, I've spoken to a lot of traders online. I've seen majority come and go. And that's been, and it was a problem with myself to start with. But I see all the time is that the prep is never given the same weight as the trading sessions and actually it should be given equal weight or even more as at times more importantly if you're not prepared before you go in there in how you're going to approach the competitive event then you're not putting odds on your side no matter how well you trade in the, in the competitive event and i wish i'd known that in the beginning because i would have definitely put more weight onto how i'm doing it now the prep and the homework and the research and review process right at the beginning. And to be honest, I think I would have knocked at least two years off my progress. 
Right. Yeah, no, I think that's that's really good advice there, Adrian. Where's the best place listeners can go to find out more about you? Um, I'm on Twitter at ADF69, and I have my, my blog where I post my trade plans and my weekly reviews, and I try and write articles on my process and basically stuff that interests me on that, um, taking taking one trade at a time.com. Okay. And would you mind just spelling out your Twitter handle, please? A-D-E-Y-F for Foxtrot 69. Excellent. Well, Adrian, I'll include links to all of these, uh, your Twitter handle, your website, as well as um, the Maximum Favorable Excursion and Maximal, Maximum Adverse Excursion uh, links uh, in the show notes as well. So, Adrian, man, I've really enjoyed this. Thank you very much for agreeing to do an interview and I appreciate your time. Uh, no problems, mate. It's my pleasure. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders, but rest assured there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes, and we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders. Chat with Traders.